Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Runners Only with Dom Harvey, proudly brought to you by Radix Nutrition. Coming up, Billy Evans. You know, the bombs went off Monday, I think by Thursday morning with President Obama and his wife coming to town. I think I got out at 3 a.m. that morning just to get a run in. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we had a long day ahead wow. of us, but... That's the de- that's the way. It was an absolute honour and a privilege to spend an hour with Billy Evans in Boston, just two days after he ran the 2023 Boston Marathon. Ten years ago, Billy, a lifelong cop and a lifelong runner, ran the Boston Marathon. Then shortly after finishing, him and his entire Boston police force had to get to work to try and find out who was responsible for the two bombs that went off near the finish line. If you've seen the Netflix documentary series American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing, you'll be familiar with Billy. He's the first face you see in episode one. He is also the person responsible for capturing one of the two bombers alive after he called for a ceasefire after an intense shootout on a boat. Billy Evans has Boston running through his blood. He's lived in Boston his whole life and spent his entire adult life in law enforcement. He's a passionate runner, husband, dad, and Bostonian. And I honestly could not believe my luck when he kindly agreed to sit down with me while I was in his city. In the hour we had together, we talk about his relationship with running, his upbringing and losing both his parents at a young age, his decades as a cop, and then the Boston bombing, a case that defined his career. This one was a real treat. The runners will love it, but I reckon the non-runners will enjoy it just as much. Thank you very much to my mates at Radix Nutrition for sponsoring this episode. These guys, if you haven't done so already, you should follow them on Instagram, Radix Nutrition, R-A-D-I-X, or check out their website, radixnutrition.co.nz. I genuinely believe this. These guys are doing incredible work with their small team from their big factory in the Waikato, and it's an honour to have a front row seat as they take on the world. Radixnutrition.co.nz. All right, let's get into it. Billy Evans on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Hey, Runners Only. Yeah, yeah, let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Fast paced, slow and steady. Anywhere you coming? Just want to connect for everyone who loves running. This is Runners Only. Yeah, yeah, let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Fast paced, slow and steady. Anywhere you coming? Just want to connect for everyone who loves running. Hey, Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and William B. Evans. Do I call you William? Do I call you Billy? Bill, Do I call Bill, you... Bill's fine. Mouse? Where's Mouse from? Mouse, yeah, yeah. My father named me that when I was a little kid, when I was probably three or four, because I was the youngest of six boys. And, uh, you know, my father raised us. I lost my mum when I was just an infant. So uh, he had a name for everyone, and that's where I got the nickname Mouse. Well, yeah. should we go with Billy today? Yeah, Billy's Okay, bad. that's cool. Hey, well, thank you so much for joining me on my on my podcast, Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Yeah. I really, really appreciate it. You're like Boston royalty. No, no, I've been, you know, lived in Boston 64 years now. My whole family grew up here. I raised my family here. So Boston's a special city for me. 
I mean, there's so much to unpack with you, especially in light of this new um, Netflix doco series about yeah. the Boston bombing, which you feature prominently in. You actually, you turned it on episode one, you're the first face that you see. First of all, I want to uh, focus on your, your running journey a little right. bit. So two days ago, you ran the Boston Marathon, right. uh, 2023, the 10th yeah. anniversary of the bombing. How did you get on? Well, it was a good race. You know, I, uh, I was lucky I got to run with my two sons. My two youngest sons ran that day. And, you know, I wanted to run because it's been 10 years from that tragic day and to honor the victims and all the survivors and honestly to just, you know, make a statement that, you know, Boston is came together that day. Everyone was united. It was Boston strong. And, you know, uh, I, I, you know I've been a big part. Running's been a big part of my, my whole life. And I thought it was important that I'd be out there. And I enjoyed the race very much, you know. Uh, obviously, I've gotten a lot slower over the years, but it was a great day. The spectators were great. And, uh, you know, it's a great day in the city of Boston. How did you feel, like, at the big, beginning of the, the run on Monday? Like, were you, were you nervous? Were you anxious? Like, well, I'm, you know, I've run 60 marathons. Yeah. I'm always anxious. I don't care how many you do. You just hope to get over those hills at, at 17 <laughs> miles. And you just don't know. Marathon's funny because you, you could feel great, and then all of a sudden... You know, your body shuts down on you at whatever mileage. So, you know, there's, there's always a little anxiousness and uh, anxiety when it starts. And mm. No, I mean, any sort of extra anxious anxiety or nerves, I suppose, because of the uh, significance of the date and the 10th yeah, anniversary. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You, know, I'm, I, you know, I can't bad help think back 10 years ago when, you know, um, no one ever thought anything like that would happen in, in the city of Boston. So, you know, um, marathons... Uh, 26.2 miles and you know anything can happen and so I, I think you're you're always anxious that there's some copycat out there or someone who wants to make a statement as we see um, all the time unfortunately in this world we got some violence and someone mm. uh, with a motive to make a statement so yeah, I don't think you, you ever can rest and think you're totally safe yeah what's your personal best you're like a two 251 uh, shit that's I good yeah I did in Boston the very first race I ran was a 2.53, so I traditionally probably half of my marathons were under three hours, but obviously as you age, I'm more, now I'm out there more for pleasure mm-hmm. and enjoy running with my sons, and it's, it's great. And, you know, I was in policing. Now I'm still chief of police at Boston College for almost 43 years, and people over the course of my career, whether it was being the police commissioner of the city and dealing with marathon bombing, asked me, uh, how do you deal with the stress? And I always said, as long as I got my run in every morning at 4.45, I, there wasn't anything I couldn't accomplish. So um, running was a big part of my life. And, and I like to say a big part of my success. Yeah, do you think, um, geez, there's a lot to get into with you, I, th- I think, if we pick away at some threads. But, you know, in terms of like mental health and PTSD and a whole lot of things like that, do you think... Um, your running and being physically fit and the some strict routine you've got has definitely helped keep that stuff oh, at bay? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, when I feel stressed out, um, even the week of the marathon, you know, the bombs went off Monday, I think by Thursday morning with President Obama and his wife coming to town. I think I got out at 3 a.m. that morning just to get a run in. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we had a long day ahead wow. of us, but that's the, the, that's the way. That's like I, a non, non-negotiable for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, everywhere I go, I don't care where I am. If I don't get my run in, uh, I'm not the same type of guy. And you know, when I had 2,200 officers in Boston, um, I always like to preach to them how important it is, not only for you physically, but more so mentally. Because in in the, 
the policing profession, we see people at their worst, and sometimes we see events like the Boston Marathon, um, where we see some terrible atrocities, and uh, you know it's 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 tough to deal with. And so I think pushing that mental health and the wellness with running was key and, and is key. Yeah, how do you get through some of that stuff? I had, had a guy on the podcast last year, Joseph Sullivan, who you wouldn't have heard of, but he's um he's uh, won the America's Cup for yachting. He's a New Zealand gold medalist for rowing as well. Now he's a firefighter, and um, he said on the way from events, there's a lot of black humour that goes on with him and his colleagues. So yeah. Do you find that's the same with you? Yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think cops sometimes um, joke, um, s- s- sort of a a crazy sense of humor that some people would think, why would you do that? But it's an outlet for us. And, uh, you know, sometimes at a crime scene, you might see the cops chuckling a little bit because that's their way they deal with it. It's not pretty to to a camera or it's not pretty to people who might be watching, but they see such tragic and horrible things in their life that, you know, not that they get cold to it, but I think sometimes that's the way they cope by sometimes joking about it and thinking... This isn't bothering me, but mm. I think deep down, we're human. Of course it's going to bother us. And, you know, uh, I think after the Boston Marathon, we learned how important it was to get our officers offline and getting them the mental health services they need. So, so just on your running journey for a bit, so where, where did it all start? It feels like it's a, now, you know, like looking back as a 64-year-old man, it's been like a lifelong obsession. It has, but, you know, I didn't really start it until I became a policeman. I think I was probably like 26, 27, and one of my brothers... James and my brother Paul, they had run the Boston Marathon, and I had gone to watch them. But I, I remember always saying, I, I think those people are crazy who do that. You know? And I said, <laughs> who in their right mind would want to put themselves to that? And I never thought I wanted to, so I started out more doing like five-mile races and 6.2. Then someone said to me, oh, you ought to try a marathon. And I, I sort of took the bait, and I tried it. And... Um, you know, I, the very first one, I, I went all out and, tra- you know, trained hard, and I got a 253, and I was like, hey, I can do this. And I got the I got the bug, and then it was became competitive against myself. Hey, I can do better. I can do better. And uh, I just really got into marathon after that. Yeah, you know? did, did you, for, for, that, um, for those ones in the 250s, did you have, like, a program, and were you doing some speed work? I just worked, like, up in Boston, the Beacon Hills, I'd do a lot of hill work. I'd do, you know, a, a regiment. I'd probably really push myself. And, you know, and, and it really came through. And I surprised myself with the 253. I, I, I think I was just hoping to do well. You know, I was running with the Boston Police Runners Club. We have our own runners club. And I was on a strict regiment and banging out the mileage every week and almost running seven days a week for uh, probably almost 25 years I ran mm. seven days a week. And, uh, I was able to accomplish that goal. Let's um, talk about your upbringing for a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's a crazy upbringing. So you're one of um, six six boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and your mum passed away with cancer when you were punishingly young. Yeah, yeah. I know. I don't have one memory of my mum. And then mm. you know, my father was left with six boys, and he did a super job raising them. And then when I was nine, my closest brother Joe, he got um, struck by a vehicle crossing. The, the roadway and he got killed and then my father you know who was bringing up six boys he passed away suddenly when I was 14 so um, you know literally I've been on my own since I've been 14 I have I have four older brothers who looked out after me 
but they also had their lives to go on. And so, uh, you know, I was very fortunate that a local Catholic priest got me into a good school. And I always joke and I say, I didn't have the brains to get into that school. We didn't have any money. <laughs> uh, but he got me a scholarship into a good high school. And I got a good education there, which helped me get into a, a good college and go on the police department after that. So that always shaped who I was because I had a local priest give me an opportunity of a lifetime. And when I became police commissioner, I always thought every young kid needs the opportunity I got. And whether you know, you're poor, whether you're whatever, we should be giving everyone this opportunity. You know, I doubt I've seen a lot of gun violence over my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people say, why do these kids have guns? Why do they shoot each other? Well, a lot of these kids have nothing in the world, uh, nothing to look forward to, and they need an opportunity like I got. So it's always shaped my whole philosophy of what a community is and what help a lot of people need. Why didn't you go off the rails when you were 14? You could have been an angry young man. Like You're yeah. going, going through puberty, you got a short change with your mom, short yeah. change with your dad right. as well. You've been through a lot of shit. Yeah. It seems like you took the, you know, there's like a fork in the road and you took yeah. a good path rather than a bad path. Why well, didn't you go the bad way? Well, I think my father, the way he brought us up to look out for each other and to look out for everyone, you know, he put us into Catholic school. So I, I was brought up with the sort of the Christian values of taking good care of each other and, you know... Um, you know, you know, you know, commandments and everything else. So I was pretty, you know, pretty regiment. Uh, I like to say, you know, if I needed something, I was more OCD-ish, I'd go after it. And so <laughs> I had friends, unfortunately, who did go off the rails and, you know, got involved in drugs. And, you know, I grew up in a community that a lot of people were either good guys or bad guys. I mean, I grew up in South Boston where Whitey Bowger was. I don't know if you've heard of Whitey Bowger, but he was a big gangster in the city of Boston who, you know, killed almost 19 people. And he sort of was the, the mob that was running my community. And so a lot of guys did go into, you know, the more dark side as opposed to the... So, but I, I owe a lot to my dad. I think he brought us yeah, up right. Sure. And, you know, he had my brothers. And what's funny now, uh, Dom, is... Me and my four older brothers still live in South Boston, and we still all look out for each other. I suppose as, as you've got older, as a as a man and a father yourself, you realise, holy shit, Dad went through all this. Like yeah. Dad was dealing with his own grief. Yeah. Dad was Dad was probably confused, thinking, "What the fuck am I going to do with all these boys?" Yeah, well, it's a lot. He died when he was fifty-two, and uh, you know, I look back, I have three children, and I, you know, thank God I had a, a wife who brought those kids up great because of being a policeman, I was out of. You know, working all the time, but, you know, I don't know how my father would have did it. And I know he died young, but, you know, to raise five kids uh, and lose one, uh, I can't imagine the stress that was on him. Mm. So, you know, he died um, suddenly uh, with, with his heart. And But I, I can't help but think how tough that was for him to lose his beautiful wife at age, yeah. like, 36 and be stuck with six boys all under the age of 12. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. So what are, your, what are your memories of your dad? Well, you know... It's he, been half a century for you well, now since you yeah, lost him. Yeah, my memories are he, he tried to keep us all together. He tried to preach uh, to us to look out for one another. And, you know, he just... I was the baby, so he took good care of me. And, you know, he's, he always told uh, his older sons that whatever happens, take care of the mouse. That was his nickname <laughs> for me. And, you know, and... 
Then my brother Paul became a policeman when he was alive. My oldest brother was a policeman, and he was so proud of Paul. Um, you know, that his son was a policeman. All three of my brothers went off to the Vietnam War. He was so proud of them to go off and fight for the country. He's one of the biggest advocates uh, uh, for defending this country. So he was proud of his boys. And, yeah. So, yeah. Do you, do you, so do you think from your perspective, either um, deliberately or subliminally, you, you became a cop because you knew it was going to be something that would make your dad proud? Yeah, I think yeah. so. He really, in growing up in the city, that's what we wanted to be, either policemen, firemen, our work for the city or the post office. We didn't have goals, you know, to be attorneys or yeah. doctors. You know, as it turns out, my middle two, two of my middle brothers became Boston firemen. And so we had two policemen, two firemen, and one of my brother Tom worked for the public utilities, for the, um, the light company. So we were just a, a working class family who went into professions that working class families went into. And my father was very proud to sort of push us in that direction of public service. Jeez, can you imagine how proud he'd be of you being the commissioner, the, yeah. <laughs> the, well, the top dog, and just the way that you've you handled some of the things that have been thrown your way? Right. Well, wow. the funny thing, Dom, is my oldest brother, Paul, was the police commissioner, too, for 10 years. So um, we had two police commissioners in my family, which is probably the only family of a major city police department to have that accomplished. And actually, my two brothers, one was a deputy chief on the Boston Fire, and one was a district chief. So we went on to be pretty successful in our professions as leaders of the, each department. So when I look back at my career and my brothers, I just wish my father was around to see half of what he was because he would have mm. been proud of us. What does commissioner mean exactly? You're just the boss of all the all the police regions of Boston? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in Boston we have 11, pre 11 precincts across the city. We have approximately 2,200 police officers in uniform, but we also have 800 civilians who work behind the scenes to get mm -hmm. you know, the job done as far as human resources, the paychecks, the fixing the vehicles. There's a whole support staff. So literally, uh, I was overseeing the public safety of the city, but also the 3,000 people who were making that happen. And it was quite an undertaking. <laughs> it's, a big, uh, it's a big job. You're spinning a lot of plates. Yeah, it was. But, you know, I always look back and, you know, it wasn't anything that I really strove to be. A police commissioner, I love being in uniform. And I was in uniform for almost 33 years. I never wanted to be a detective. I never wanted to work plain clothes. I like going to calls. I like being in the visible presence of a policeman. And so um, I was proud of the job. And then... You know, I, I dealt with some difficult tasks, such as the Occupy movement in the city of Boston, and then obviously the marathon. And then mm. after that, my commissioner left shortly after it, Ed Davis, and Mayor Menino, who was the mayor at the time of the crisis, appointed me acting police commissioner. And then the new mayor, Mayor Walsh, made me the permanent police commissioner. Wow, what a journey. Yeah. I used to see the toll it took on my brother yeah. Paul. And I say, who in their right mind wanted that, would take that job? But <laughs> One thing leads to another. Yeah, I fell into yeah, it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, I, I was overwhelmed at first, but, you know. You the, grow into the role, don't you? Yeah, yeah, well, the hardest part, and I joke a lot, is, you know, all I had was blue outfits, police uniforms for 34 <laughs> years. So I think I owned one suit and one tie, so... I had to go out and buy a whole wardrobe, so I looked good every day. And, you know, I, I ended up having like 
15 suits and 100 ties and, and uh, so the hardest part was finding an outfit every day when all I had to worry was was putting on the same outfit for almost 33, 34 years. Yeah, in a way, I suppose it's kind of like, um, yeah, there's some, some big minds that come to mind, like Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and Steve yeah. Jobs from Apple, and they were the same, they, they, they had almost like a uniform. Yeah. You know, they wore the same thing every day because it just took one yeah. decision out of each day yeah. for them. Yeah, uh, Tell us about um, Terry, your wife Terry. You're, yeah. You're, you're still married. It seems yeah. like you're very happily married. Yeah, yeah, we'll be married almost 35 years in, in another month. You know, she grew up in the city and, She's a Rosendale part of the city. Um, you know, she's a uh, very sharp girl. Obviously, I always joke, and well, I shouldn't joke. She's a lot smarter than I am. She was Boston Latin girl. She has her master's in English as a second language. And, you know, I had to work a lot of days, a lot of nights, and she basically was the one home raising the children and sort of gave up her career because she worked for the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, writing their publications, this and that, and raised our three children. And a lot of nights I would come home from a rough night, uh, and I'd be out of gas, and she'd be sitting at the kitchen table quizzing the kids on their homework. And uh, and so, you know, she's a strong woman, and, uh, you know, I owe a lot of my success to her because uh, she basically helped raise a, a beautiful family for me and all my three children doing well, but... I owe that completely to her, and uh, I'm a lucky guy with a good Mm. woman. I feel like you would have been, I'm guessing, like after a hard night shift or after a hard day at the office, you're not the sort of guy that's going to come home and disengage and just sit down with a beer and ignore your family. I feel like you would have been quite quite good at sort of managing and wearing the different hats, the cop hat, the family, the dad hat, the husband hat. I am, but my wife, see, the problem with me and my wife jokes with me all the time is I didn't have any females in my life. You know, my mom died when I was an infant. Uh, my father raised us. Um, we had six boys, and so, you know, she always used to say, uh, "Be careful what you say to your daughter," because I, you know, I, I, I you know, uh, it, it's it, it was different. Like guys, we were guys. You know, no one ever put the toilet seat down. You know, we like, no what? What? There was no had, need to. Yeah, no one had clothes on, and so you know, the whole environment was such different growing up in an all boys family with no mom. So. You know, I had to get lectured on on how to bring up a daughter <laughs> and, you know, um, a lot of issues around a young female growing up. So, you know, my wife was, thank God, able to handle a lot of it. So you got three kids, two sons, one daughter. Yeah. Um, they're all growing up now in their, in their 20s. And you, you were about to become grandparents for the first time. Yeah, my daughter. In fact, she initially the game plan for this year's marathon that all three of my children were going to run the race. Wow. Uh, and they were all signed up, but then about two months ago, my daughter asked us over for dinner, and uh, she got married in August, and now she's expecting in August. So needless to say, she stopped training because of the safety of, the, of her uh, newborn, and uh, you know, so two of my boys ran. So, but me and my wife are excited uh, to be grandparents, uh, and it'll be a new chapter in our life, taking care and helping out her. Um, as she starts her new life. And so we sort of joke with her saying, she's, it looks like she's going to have a girl, we know, 
And I said, well, payback's a bitch. And, uh, <laughs> and I always sort of joke and said, see how you like raising a girl now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, how ex- it's an exciting new chapter of your life, I yeah, guess, isn't it? it? Is. And you, you, seem, you seem like really calm and at peace now and just ready for this chapter. Yeah, I am. I am. It'll be fun. And, you know, my wife teaches still at Catholic school in South Boston, two blocks from my house. And, you know, I'm always hoping she'll, you know, relax a little and retire and maybe... Now is the time that we're having a grandchild and my wife can help raise the, the baby. Mm. How do you think you'll be different as a grandfather to how you were as a father? Were, were you quite a strict dad? or? Well, I think I was brought up very strict. Yeah. Um, I think I was pretty strict. I mean, not as strict as my father was. Mm. I mean, the old school, you know, if you messed up, you got a kick in the a ass. Whack. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I was raised in a yeah. Catholic family yeah. as well. I was tough on them, mm. you know, especially, you know, uh, I want them to be successful and... But, you know, not, not overly stringent at any means. And they all grew up to be great kids, you know. They, I had one daughter. They all went through college. I had one go to Harvard, one go to Boston College. And my other daughter went to, uh, um, you know, Westfield State, yeah. which was pretty good. Okay, oh, that's my mum. Hi. Mum, this is Billy Evans. How are you? Nice to meet you. Actually, you guys, you guys probably ran similar times. What was what was your time? I think I was like four fifty-five too. Right there. <laughs> good for you. You're yeah, good. For you. Oh God, she's going to be going the whole plane ride home. She's going to be going on about that. He's yeah. in his sixties yeah, and yeah. I beat him. It's too hard when you walk. Oh yeah, yeah. I was hurting. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, I've had some good races. This one, I was, you know, I feel my hip. I, I was telling. Dom, I was in Toronto four years ago running, and I tripped, and I went down, and uh, I got up, and I, I had hurt my hip, and uh, I walked five blocks back to the hotel, and I called the State Department, who had sponsored my trip, and I said I wanted to get back home because I was hurt, and I, the hotel got me a wheelchair, put me in a cab, and I hopped on the plane, and I came right home and went right for Mass General here, and I had a broken hip, so... They ended up putting a rod and four screws in my hip three years ago. and uh, mm. you know, But I've run probably three or four marathons on it, and I feel good. But I, I could feel my hip on on Monday just because of the dampness. And the, the, it was oh, is that right? Oh, you feel it on cold days? Yeah. yeah. It gets into your bones. And my, two, my two children ran. That's amazing. Know, and they did under four, both of them. So I was more happy for them than yes. the fact I finished. Mm. And it was number 60 for me. So, let's oh, how good! Congratulations! Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you have any aspirations to get to a hundred or no, anything? No, no. no, no. <laughs> I wanted to get to sixty. I hope I, I bounce back from this one. I'll keep going. Mm. You know, my sons are going up to Maine in three weeks. There's the Seacoast Marathon, and they're going to try to do that because they're all trained up now and they're young. Yeah, they can probably bounce back. But uh, I'm I'm going to go easy for a while with the hope, uh, you know, bouncing back. I hope to do. Another couple, anyway. I don't, yeah, I don't fantastic. Know. Oh, the mar- yeah, you've still got um, Tokyo and yeah. uh, Berlin today. Yeah, to get the six. Yeah. Okay, so you become a cop. You're a cop on the beat for many, many decades. I, mean, I suppose there's there's a lot of things that you you saw and you did that just sort of roll into one or blur into another day. But there must be some um, more memorable or unforgettable cases as well. Well, you know, growing up here in the city, you know, unfortunately, you know, you don't deal with a lot of gun violence in the neighbourhoods, and nothing bothered me more to see. A lot of young kids dying on the streets, um, you know, and witnessing it, basically. That stuff always bothers me. 
you know, so we've seen a lot of tragedies, and I don't miss that stuff, but, you know, a lot of challenges. Uh, we were fortunate in this city. We've had 12 sports championships over the last 20 years. You know, I was able to witness four Red Sox championships, six Patriots championships, Bruins and Celtics, and putting on those parades were always a challenge for me in those celebrations, but obviously I think the biggest challenge for me will always be uh, the tragedy of the Boston Marathon bombing back in 2013. Yeah, would you say that's the, that's the event that sort of defined your whole career? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that will always stick in all our minds, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, and most definitely that's, that's, that's the most uh, defining moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think because you're a cop and a runner as well, it just had like um, a double whammy sort of effect for you? It did. You know, mm. I, I, being a marathoner and having done the Boston Marathon, you know, at that time probably 20 times, I, I know all the running community. I yeah. know the members of the Boston Athletic Association. They're all my pals Dave McGilvery, Josh Nemza, Tom Grill, Jack Fleming. And so, you know, those, all those meetings, all that planning, I was deeply involved in. And, you know, being a lifelong resident of the city, when they blew up our marathon, I took it personal. You know, not only was I a marathoner, I was, that was my plan that day. Uh, you know, I was in the leadership position, and so it, I felt an utmost responsibility to find out who did this. And, you know, Mayor Menino was the mayor at the time. Um, you know, for him, I wanted to get who did this. And so... That's what drove us over those five days, mm. and, you know. And, and you know, at the end, to be there and be right on the scene, the first one on the scene, and to capture that and put this to a rest and closure was very satisfying mm. for me. You, you mentioned just before you were on the um, the you know the leadership group, so you, the, you felt a certain level of responsibility. Was there like a, and there shouldn't have been, but was there like an element of guilt or something that you should have done more, or you, the, you know, there, there there could have been some way you avoided this happening? Uh, I, I don't think so. No. I, I don't think there's any guilt. I mean, when you think of it, 26.2 miles, it's an open-air event. It's a family day. You know, mm. uh, who could have anticipated oh, precisely. what would have happened? You know, uh, the, we were fortunate in the sense that the bombs went off when they did. Uh, uh, because if it went off closer to 12 o'clock that day, the crowds were so much thicker. I mean, this was four hours and 48 minutes into the race. Mm. And I look back, and the crowd had somewhat thinned out at that point. And I always look back, if they had done it earlier, there would have been so much more tragedy. And, uh, but I, I don't think anyone could have foreseen uh, the horror on that street that day. And someone, two individuals would be so evil to pull out what they did. And all I think about is them poor victims who lost their lives. And so many people, as we've seen the other day, who lost limbs and uh, mm. you know, have to live with that pain and suffering the rest of their life. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right. So, so, so run us through the, uh, the day for you. So Marathon Monday, Patriots Day, 10 years ago, 2013. So you go to the start line. You, how are you feeling about the run, first of all? Well, I know, feel like it's a day of two halves for you, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was a regular, you know, again, probably my 20th marathon. I went up to Hopkinton. It was a beautiful day. I remember hanging in the gymnasium up there and getting out and run. And, you know, I felt great. It was one of those races. I think I, I did a 334 that day nice. at the marathon. And uh, I finished my wife. Terry and my son Will, who was 13, were at the finish line. And, you know, being a superintendent, I, my vehicle was like two blocks away. And so I rallied with them, got them in my car, rode them to my house, and I went down to the local athletic club, which is about six blocks away from my house and was in a hot tub. We sponsor all the cops from around the world who come to Boston, and, and we get them transportation up, but we also use this health club, all of us. So... I was in the hot tub talking to a bunch of officers, and we were telling war stories about the marathon. And, uh, and one of my detectives ran in and said, hey, boss, two bombs went off at the finish line. I was like, no way. That couldn't have happened here. Um, that doesn't happen here in Boston. I thought at first it was a transformer, maybe blew up, yeah. an electrical, because that area, Copley Square, had had a few electrical explosions over the last few years. And, uh, but he said, no, that's what they're telling me. So I got out, jumped in the shower, got in my car, got home, had a run up, three flights of stairs, put on my uniform, and within 10 minutes I was back at the scene. And to see, you know, the pain, the suffering, to see, the, you know, the barriers blown out, the windows, um, it was, uh, you know, it was surreal to think that I had run down the street just a little over an hour ago, and to see the destruction is something I'll, I'll always remember, but at that point, you know, I had to put my policeman hat on and go to work trying to secure that scene, make sure the victims were all well taken care, and then direct operations to find out who was responsible mm. for doing it. Yeah, how, how do you, uh, in um, a situation like that, keep cool and, and composed and um, not make any knee-jerk or silly decisions do you know what i mean like you're surrounded by chaos and you don't know what's no one knows what's going on no i mean my police commissioner was there you know then other outside agencies the fbi state police everyone started coming in to assist us but you know you had to lock down the scene you had to sweep the whole area with bomb technicians but then we had to set up a command post up in the western hotel close by here and go to work arranging uh you know to have security (coughs) at the hospitals have security all over because we had some terrorists out running around and we didn't know what the next target would be. Yeah, and this is a big focus on the um, the Netflix doco series that we're talking about, just the hunt for, um, as they call them, um, black hat and white white hat. When when did it become clear to you that this was um, like a bombing thing and these were the two, the two guys you were looking well, for? Well, I think we knew it was a bombing thing that mm. when we were on the scene because, you know, you could see parts of the pressure cooker you could see the BBs. You could see 
you know, elements of it, what was inside that pressure cooker. So we knew it was deliberate action, but we didn't know who it was till almost Wednesday of that week when after we viewed videos along the finish line, after we asked people to give us their phones, uh, you know, we were able to limit it down um, to those two individuals walking up, I think it was Hereford Street, by Whiskey's, which was the bar there, and we seen them both walking with the backpacks. And there they separate, and uh, we follow them as they move down outside the Forum restaurant. And, uh, you know, I think I've seen that video a million times where White Hat literally drops that backpack um, at the feet of the Richards family. Uh, yeah. I still can't get that thought out of my head that someone would place a bomb deliberately behind a young family and deliberately walk away and blow that family up. It's not like he dropped it there an hour early and whoever, uh, whoever happens to be there, be there. But he knew what he was going to do there. And, you know, and, and then the other brother had just set off the bombs outside, uh, you know, Marathon Sports. And so, you know, it, it, that's when we focused on White Hat and Black Hat. Yeah, it's unimaginable, isn't it? <laughs> really, just like drop it. It, it. it feels very personal in a way, like dropping that bag, noting the people that are around you, and noting that they're going to be the victims. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a beautiful young girl, young family, you know, with everything to live for. And he decides to stand behind that family. And he stood there for a good five or ten minutes, so he knew. And, and when everyone looks to the left with the first bombs going off outside the forum set off by Black Hat, he starts to move to the right. And that's why we knew this was our guy. And mm. he was probably only 10 yards away when that whole area blows mm. up. So, you know, um, tough to know that he knew who he was going to hurt. Mm. How many people did you have going through footage? Like you said you, said you put the call out for footage and yeah. uh, everyone's got a phone in their hand and everyone's recording everything these days. You must have had just thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of hours. How big was the team? We, well, was we had FBI, we had state police, uh, forensics, we had Boston. We, I'm not sure the exact numbers, yeah. but we had whatever it took to, to narrow down onto these two guys. You, you, the city went into lockdown. The, right. the whole world is familiar with lockdown now because seven years after that, um, the pandemic came right. along. So everyone's... But this was, this was a weird... This, I can't imagine what it was like being on the ground in Boston at that time. It must yeah. have been a terrifying time for all the residents and right. just a bizarre time. Yeah, it was bizarre. You know, uh, during the week, you know, President Obama and his wife came to town on Thursday. And then that night is when Officer Sean Collier got shot at MIT. And then they were, the, the, the terrorists were on the run then. And I think after that shootout in Watertown, we got information that they might be heading to New York and... There was a lot of info out there, so, you know, just to make sure the city was safe um, and surrounding communities, because it wasn't just Boston that was shut down. Watertown was, a lot of the surrounding communities. The governor and mayor put the shutdown order in place. And for the next probably, you know, 12 hours, people didn't go out, and it was an airy time. And, you know, I got to Watertown around midnight after uh, Sean Collier got killed, and for the next 19 hours... We were on the ground in Watertown searching for, for that one mm -hmm. who turned out to be White Hat all day long. You know, Black Hat was shot and killed in the shootout. Um, and then the brother was the manhunt. And, you know, I sort of spearheaded that for the next 
you know, um, 19 hours, and finally we were able to, you know, locate him in the boat again. Uh, yeah, you were yeah. you were right there on the scene. So there was um, yeah. it was almost like a like a wild west type shootout, and then you you called the you, you made the call to cease fire uh, because right. you wanted the uh, white hat taken right. in alive rather right. than dead. Right. You, you look back now. Was that the right decision? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. I think uh, clearly, you know, we didn't know what the motives were of these individuals. I don't think we knew um, how big of a terrorist cell it was. So. You know, if we had just killed him, we would still never know who was behind this. And the, the ability to take him alive and to interrogate him and to find out his motives and to see if this was just sort of a lone wolf with the two brothers, I think turned out to be instrumental. And But I didn't want him killed. Uh, you know, we had way too much information to gather. And uh, as it turned out, I, I thought it turned out well. What, what are your thoughts on um, the de- he's on death row, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the death penalty? Are you for it, against it? Or? Well, growing up as a Catholic, yeah. I was never for it because our religion is against it. But I have mixed emotions on this one because I seen how treacherous they were, how evil they were, and the fact that White Hat deliberately stood behind that one family and did what he did. If there was a reason to have it, this is the best reason to have it. But. Mm. You know, morally, I'm against it, but I think there has to be occasionally an exception uh, to send out that we won't ter- we won't tolerate terrorism in, in such evil acts as these two brothers committed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some might say um, Black Hat, the the brother that got shot and then run over, got off lightly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think a, a, a better, better punishment is to yeah sit in a cell for a number of years to think about what you've done right. and then um, yeah face your own demise. Right, right, and you know again two evil persons who brought mm. terrorism to Boston, and I, I'm just was happy as a as a marathoner and as a resident of the city and as a policeman to be instrumental mm. in in capturing them. And I, I remember. One of my good friends, Cullum Lyon, who was a deputy on our job, he said, it's almost like the marathon gods wanted you at the final scene to get mm. the person who was, who was responsible. Yeah. Oh, the final scene being like the boat and Watertown. Yeah, I yeah. literally was the first one on the boat. Yeah, yeah. So we'll just rewind a little bit. So the, um, the Obama visits, visit. So Obama was president at the time, and he came when the, when the, you know, the, the search was still underway. Yeah. Was that, a, like from your perspective, was that annoying at the time? Well, it was Like annoying. a distraction? It was, just because we were so tired. Yeah. We were flat out. And normally putting on a presidential visit by itself is quite an undertaking. But to put it on in the middle of a terrorist uh, on the loose in your city, um, it was that much more draining, you know? And then him and his wife went to five different hospitals working with the Secret Service. It was just probably wrong place, wrong time. But, Dom, as it turned out, he gave a great speech, a uniting Mm. speech that really rallied the city. So I I looked at it as a drain on our resources, but it, it was very instrumental in bringing the city together and yeah. hailing the city. <laughs> so that, that week, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes, like how much sleep were you getting? Were you sleeping at all? No, I bet. I, I'm lucky I got 10 hours all week. And, you know, my adrenaline was pumping. Mm. You know, I'd go home. I, when I ran the race, um, you know, I was up probably at 4 on Monday. First time I went to bed was 10 o'clock on Tuesday night. Uh, so I think I was awake for probably 36 straight hours. And then every night after that was three or four hours because we were all running on 
fumes. Mm. Just think of it. I had just run 26.2 miles and I didn't go to bed for almost 36 hours. But to tell you the truth, I didn't, I didn't feel my legs. Mm. I was just running on pure adrenaline. So Watertown, where the um, where the, the shootout happened uh, with the boat, you have to excuse my geography. Where's Watertown from where we are now in central Boston? Well, Watertown abuts Boston out by Newton. So if you picture where Heartbreak Hill is, it's probably only a couple of miles from there. Okay. So it's not far off the route. But I don't know Watertown. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I grew up as a city kid. I didn't venture far out. So when I got word that they were chasing in Watertown and there was the shootout, I had no clue where I was going out there. Mm. And even when I was incident commander, I was in an area I was very uh, unfamiliar with, and with the streets and where I was, but I was able to take control and run that whole final scene. Because the search had been done around Watertown. Did, did, did someone cock up? Did someone not look in the boat that should have looked in the no, boat? I don't think anyone ever oh. looked in the boat. Uh, I don't know if that was off the grid, but you know, all of a sudden I got word uh, from a Watertown cop that they had word that someone was in the boat and we quietly went up and I walked down the alley and uh, I seen uh, someone poking at the heat sail of the wrap of the boat and so I was on first one literally on that boat with two of my officers and uh, we were able to uh, you know work with the FBI hostage recovery team we threw flashbangs in the boat we threw smoke grenades and finally we were able to negotiate with them and we got them out, and so it was a successful conclusion. Yeah, how, how, does that, how does that negotiation look? Well, I think they just said, you know, the, you know, they were dealing with them. Come on, come on, and, uh, you know, whatever the, uh, the FBI said to them, they got them <laughs> like, out. Come on, come, yeah, it's, it's like, come on, mate, you're fucked. Yeah, you just, yeah. Yeah, well, for, he knew, I mean, we yeah. had from a flashbang and a smoke grenade. It was just a matter of him coming out, and I remember them getting them out, wearing them by me. You know, he was wounded, shot in the neck, and all bloody and you know I remember saying to the FBI hostage recovery uh, is that our guy and they said yep 100% that's our guy and it was the most uh, you know successful conclusion that we could have had and uh, you know but it was the conclusion of a 105 hour ordeal for all of us and I was just glad mm. it was over. How many bullets were fired into that into that boat? It's probably lucky that he got away with his life in a way. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was screaming for everyone to stop shooting. Yeah. Probably, they, you know, people estimated maybe as many as two hundred. But uh, but we were able to get him out and bring it to a successful conclusion. <laughs> and I was never so relieved in all my life when they wheeled him by me and you know, we got finally got the two people responsible. Yeah. God, that must have been just a huge sense of relief. And then did, did you go and, and see him in hospital? Well, it's funny. You know, I, I went up to watch the Red Sox game where, you know, Big Poppy addressed the crowd. And then I went by the Beth Israel Hospital where he was just to make sure it was very secure there. And I went up outside his room and there were several policemen outside the door. And they said to me, boss, do you want to take, go in and see him and take a look at him? I said, I don't ever want to see that guy again. I says, I'm, you know, I was disgusted with what he did. I had seen him come out. I seen him at the boat, but I, I had such disgust that I didn't want to open that hospital room and take a peek at him because, uh, you know, I had no respect for the guy. And I'm not going to honor him by thinking he's a, a role model or something. And so I said to my officer, I don't ever want to see him again. No, I don't need to see him. So, I did go by the hospital, but uh, I'd be damned if I'm, I'm going to 
take a peek at. Oh, yeah, you mentioned yeah you swung by the hospital after being at um, Fenway Park for a Red Sox game. Is that where you, you got acknowledged on the on the field? Yeah, everybody yeah. did. And then, yeah. you know, Big Poppy said, you know, they blew up our effing city and and uh, it was quite emotional for me mm. when they played God Bless America and um, you know they had a collage up on the big screen of of uh, the city and what it went through and I remember tears almost coming to my eyes uh, because it was such an emotional five days. <laughs> it's just unimaginable. Yeah. And then um, how do you how do you de-stress after that? What 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 are the you know the the days the weeks the months after that look like? Well, it was tough. You know, uh, you know. My wife was on me about the mental health training. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up speaking to a fellow at Harvard who specialized in dealing with aftermaths of terrorism and sort of, you know, uh, sort of um, like mental health. And, you know, I, I told him what I went through. And after going through the whole ordeal, he, I said to him, um, Doctor, what, what's your advice? He says, just keep running. Just keep running. That's your medicine. And so... And my wife, I think, when I told her that, said, you're kidding me. Uh, like, like, <laughs> I feel like you must be paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, There's more to you, it. Than... You run enough, <laughs> and you, you don't need to be told to keep running. But that, like I said earlier here, that's my medicine. That's yeah. the way I deal with stress. And I continue to run, and that's why at age 64, almost 65, mm. I, I hope I run until uh, I'm 90, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, you're doing you're doing great. So, so no, no real therapy or counselling or anything to speak of. No, no, no nothing. Just didn't know. feel like you need you need it. What do, do you have like a like a resilience plan? Or is it just running? Just uh, running. Yeah. You know, but oh, I suppose like discipline as well. I suppose that comes into it, like your four thirty starts that you've done for years and yeah. years and years. Yeah, yeah, it's discipline. It's being out there, and you know, I think when we're your runners at the end of the day, when you put your head on the pillow. Uh, Usually you don't have a problem sleeping because mm. you put in a long day, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, as police commissioner, I was running on two or three hours of sleep most nights, so you know I built up a good tolerance to not getting a lot of sleep. And as as marathoners, when something tragic like the Boston happens, I think being in that type of shape helped carry me through those five days. Mm. Yeah, but I just can't imagine what this. Um compounded stress over all these years has done for your cortisol levels or you know your heart rate and things like yeah. that it's yeah. uh, your blood pressure you're in good shape you get a medical and oh yeah, yeah. I, I, you know i see a cardiologist i keep <laughs> on top of you know i remember the week after i had to go to the dentist because my teeth were killing me after the bombing and i went in and he says nothing wrong with your teeth he's like you're just grinding your teeth after the week you had and so uh, I remember going to the dentist, and that's that's how bad I, I I must have been under stress. You know, I had to go to the dentist because my I was just grinding my teeth. So, but I, you know, I, I I tried to medically. I knew the stressful job I was in. I I, I always made sure I I got um, as I do now regular checkups. Even before running this marathon, you know, I I I got a good level checkup by my cardiologist just to make sure I'm okay to go over those. The heartbreak hills of Boston. <laughs> and what about what about nightmares and stuff? When you when you shut your eyes at night and you go to sleep, yeah. any, any bad dreams about the things you've seen? And well, I, I, you know, I think once in a while, you know, whether it's young kids getting shot on the streets of Boston or mm. going to a tough car accident where you see some terrible things. I've seen, you know, children burned up in fires. I've seen a lot of tragic things, and you know, I think. Again, running's the key to my success. Uh, 
you know, uh, I've talked to counselors over the years. Um, you know, and I don't think anyone should be afraid to seek mental health training, and it's beneficial to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, every study you hear, everything you read, sometimes say uh, aerobic exercises is great for mental health. And I think that's why we all get addicted to running, because oh, it completely. feels good yeah. physically and it feels good mentally. Yeah, it clears your mind. It's, yeah. it's, so, it's funny, eh, because it, it feels like yeah, everyone's known about the physical health benefits of running, but right. it feels like it's only a recent thing, like the last right. 10 or 20 years, that you, know, you realize uh, just the, the, the goodness it brings from the right. neck up. It's yeah. incredible. Hey, I mentioned on um, my um, Instagram page to my mostly New Zealand um, fans that I'm meeting with you today, and I've got a bunch of questions from them to put yeah. to you. How has this case affected your perspective on life, society, and humans as a whole? Well, I think it, it hasn't really. Um, you know, I think most, if not all, people have goodwill in their heart, and we all look out for each other. But unfortunately, um, you know, there's people out there who sometimes get radicalized who will act out like these two brothers did. I think the problem in a lot of our world is, um, you know, mental health's a big issue. Mm. You know, I think you see here, especially in America, way too many violent incidents with guns. And uh, so, you know, 99.99 people are good, but um, unfortunately, you have some people who are evil, and I think we've seen it in this case. Yeah, what are your thoughts on um, gun violence in America? It's tough. Yeah. You know, as police commission Boston, I was dealing with it. And, you know, we have major cities who, you know, have kids, young kids getting killed <coughs> in our streets every day. And it breaks my heart to see it. And I wish we, we, we could do more, not to take away people's Second Amendment rights, but to be stricter and have universal gun laws. So we can keep guns out of young kids' hands who, uh, who, who take, you know, take each other's lives, uh, senseless violence. Yeah. Because yeah, we had a situation, I don't know, you, you may have heard about this, it may have been on your radar, there, there was a, like a mosque shooting in New Zealand um, yeah. a few years ago on March 15, and um, uh, just, a, a, again, like a lone wolf gunman yeah. went into these mosques and shot 50 Muslims dead, yeah. and our government immediately implemented this gun buyback scheme. Right. The, the issue is it hasn't really worked, because what you've got is good people yeah. who are legally entitled to have these guns um, doing the right thing, and then bad guys with guns yeah. and not doing the right thing. Yeah, but so it's a tough what? one, isn't it? But you know what, I'm a big advocate, the less guns we have overall in society, the better. <laughs> because what we find in America is 65% of the gun deaths are by suicide. Mm. Really? Know? And so having a gun around the house sometimes gets into the wrong hands. Or someone who's having a mental health crisis has access to a gun and they commit it. So, you know, if that gun wasn't in the house, a young kid might not have picked it up. Or a young, you know, so... Uh, I, I'm I'm a big advocate. The less yeah. guns, in uh, um, in gun buyback, yeah, a lot of people say it's a gimmick. But if you can get a gun out of a house that doesn't get into the hands of a young child, it's a good thing. Okay, oh, that's an interesting interesting yeah. perspective and good way of looking at it. Um, someone asked the question: In hindsight, would you do anything differently? I suppose no, this pertains to the bombing. No, not really. I mean, uh, obviously, we wish we. Uh, could have prevented it, uh, but we didn't have information yeah. enough to do that. I think the response was unbelievable. I think, you know, uh, within 20 minutes, 270 people were taken from the scene, and everybody taken from the scene survived. So the response, the training, the preparation was good. No one could have ever foreseen <coughs> what could have happened. Uh, and I think the response was, was a good response. You know, yeah. being at the final boat scene, 
we lost a little control with so many officers responding to the scene. I, I think we could have did a better job there. Uh, but I was just happy after, after five grueling days that we were able to get the two people responsible. And the, uh, someone asked the 2014 marathon, one-year anniversary. How on edge were you? What was that one again? Um, 2014, oh, so the one-year anniversary. You know, I yeah. was commissioner at the time. So you I didn't mean, run that year? No, because no. I became police commissioner. Yeah. It was my responsibility to make sure that race was safe. And I, in my right mind, couldn't be out enjoying the day when I was so concerned about <coughs> the security and safety of the residents of the city. So I remember walking the route the last two miles up and down, up and down, making sure everything was locked down. And I'll always remember Meb, Meb Kobleski when he ran by me. I was at Beacon and Park Drive, and it gave everyone goosebumps because an American was going to win the race mm. the year after the bomb. And you talk about good karma. It really, Boston Strong, for an American to win it a year, that set the tone. And everybody was thrilled with the way the day went. And, and, and talk about karma, the same year the Red Sox went on to will the will. <laughs> so Boston came together all as far as an American winning the race, the Red Sox, you know, putting on a new... Uh, and that, you know, a, a more secure marathon, mm. um, but it, it was it was a stressful day for me. Yeah, no doubt. Has, has Boston Strong always been like a Boston slogan, or is that something that no, was created? It was created here, right? You know, I think the way the city rallied around the victims, the way the city rallied around law enforcement, the way everyone came together, that motto came about. And you know, w- when I was running the other day, um, with a mile to go under. Painted on a an underpass year round is Boston Strong, and it just brought back a lot of good memories for me when I had a mile to go and sort of pushed me that last tough mile, believe it or not. And you know, even when I was running this day and my legs were hurting, uh, I was thinking of the victims and mm. the pain and the suffering they went through. And I'm like, this is nothing compared to what yeah. they did. And it brought me through those last couple grueling miles. Someone asked on Instagram. Um in regards to Black Hat, White Hat, um, is there an update on the rest of the family? Like, no, do you, no I, you don't, I don't, don't care. I'm done with them. Yeah. It's tough, though, in a situation like that, though, isn't it? Like, imagine how embarrassing it is. Someone in your, your own family does yeah. something as heinous as that. Yeah, it's awful. It's, it's yeah. tragedy to yeah. think that someone that could be that evil. Any ideas about what we can do to stop someone turning into a criminal? Well, I think it's all about your upbringing. I really do. I think the values, the, the religion... Uh, good parenting, I think there's, you know, uh, but again, unfortunately people have mental health crisis that, you know, uh, you know they, they act out. And these cases, they were radicalized by their religion. And so I think the key thing, and we really preach here, if someone knows about someone who might be involved in criminal activity or terrorism, you know, if you see something, say something. Mm. That's the big model yeah. here, you know we're finding more and more that there's usually some early warning red flags um, that could have prevented these, these events, whether it's an active shooter event or whatnot. So, you know, if you're a mother, your dad, or if you're anybody who sees someone who has a mindset that they're going to do something terrible, all we ask is they call and let us get them the help they need. Someone asked the question, what did police learn from the Reddit stuff during the manhunt? 
Um, they, they touch upon this in the, um, the Netflix documentary. I think it's just about people doing almost like, like jigsaw journalism, basically, like trying to piece together what happened on the... On yeah, I mean, I don't get that a lot. You yeah. know, they, they got to leave us. Leave the job to us. There's too many mo- Monday morning quarterbacking, as we call it. Out <laughs> yeah, there. right, right. Everyone wants to be a cri- criminal uh, analyst, and you know, uh, leave it to the trained people. Um, someone wants to know: There's in, in New Zealand at the moment. There's um, a huge problem with youth crime, uh, in particular a spate of ram raids. Yeah. So you get these kids; they steal a car, crash it into a yeah. shop, and go go nuts. Um, what would your solution be for that? I mean, uh, again, uh, I think it. It's basically, you know, uh, you, know you got to call these kids in and, and 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 try to talk to them about, you know, the disorder they're causing and maybe even talk to the parents and get the parents and the community involved because it shouldn't be a police issue. I've found everyone always relies on the police to solve it, but it's more of a, uh, a public health issue that the community has to come together and stop it, be, you know, whether it's their parents getting involved in their lives and giving them opportunities, but... You know, it shouldn't be just the police dealing with these kids. It should be a community issue and it should be the parents. Yeah. One thing we see uh, reported a lot when it comes to American cops in New Zealand is um, you know, racism. And there was the George yeah. Floyd thing a few yeah. years ago. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that, racism? Well, in the- well uh, obviously, I, I think policing has a history of racism in their past. And, you know, I think George Floyd and a lot of events here in America have brought that uh, to light. And I think, you know, American policing is changing a lot of their tactics. You know, a lot of policing are going unconscious bias training, fair and impartial policing. And, you know, we learned a valuable lesson that, you know, police officers have biases out there and we need to correct them. And we should be fair and impartial, no matter what color, religion, creed, whatever you are. And so terrible time in policing uh, over the last couple of years. And I think police are, uh, are starting to train better and and uh, realize the mistakes of the past. And someone wants to know about the movie uh, Patriot's Day, which yeah. is um, the Mark Wahlberg yeah. movie about the Boston bombing. Who, who played you, by the way? Were you in the? Were you cast in the movie at all? Yeah, I was someone, James Colby, who was a local Hollywood actor who grew up in the city, played me. Uh, James, he, he was a good guy. Unfortunately, he passed away about a year or two ago suddenly, but, uh, you know. Were you I happy always, with him as the casting, or were you, yeah. you shooting for Brad Pitt? Well, I was shooting for Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I, I couldn't get Arnold. He wasn't available, so we ended up going with James. And that, that can you, would, by the way, can you imagine Arnold trying to uh, do a Boston exit? Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, Mark Wahlberg was neat working with those guys and working with uh, Peter Berg, who was the director. But, you know, again, it all comes down to remembering the victims. Uh, you mm. know, as I look over this, I think we can never forget what the, this was yeah. all about. It was about tragedy that happened on that day. It's about remembering, you know, the, the four victims who lost their lives to these terrorists and, and more importantly, Boston coming together to address uh, what was a horrible event on the streets of our city. And so I always say there was no heroes here. Yeah. It was everyone pulling together when the city was down and out to raise it up, to, to you know, put Boston on the map as Boston strong. Oh, that's a nice conclusion. Um, yeah, just a couple of final ones about the uh, the Netflix thing, though. Yeah, so you've seen the three. It's only come out a few days yeah. ago, but um, you've seen the three episodes. Yeah. Yeah. You're mostly happy with it. Anything that you said that was um, omitted that you wish was in there? No, uh, I, you know, I think they did a good job portraying a lot of what happening. Uh, you know, 
you know, it's again, it was very emotional for me to watch those three days. And, mm. um, you know, I watched it with my son and my d wife, who were very emotional over it. And, you know, uh, you know it, it, it was a sad day in Boston. It brought back a lot of poor memories for me. And, and uh, you know, uh, but I, I thought it was, you know, it, they had a lot of video there I had never seen, a lot of things I hadn't known about. And so uh, a lot of it was eye opening for me, too. But, I thought, you know, from what I seen, and you know, it was a realistic uh, sort of snapshot of what happened. Yeah, and you, I mean, it's only been a few days since it's been up now, yeah. and no doubt it's going to be a hugely popular documentary that's consumed all over the world. You haven't noticed a difference, like your your inbox hasn't been. I mean, you got a podcast well, request a from of, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people <laughs> have been texting me and uh, you know, uh, email me just saying, hey, um, you know, we appreciate all you did mm. and. You know, you were great in it. You know, you came across as genuine and, you know, more uh, emotional. And But it, it was an emotional time for me. And yeah. as I look back, when they did that interview, it's, it's something I'll never, ever get over. It's, you know, and I don't think the city will ever get over it. So, uh, yeah, uh, some people have, uh, have said some complimentary things. But, again, it's not about me. Yeah. It's about those victims that day and those who still live with those injuries. All right. Hey, okay. oh, Billy Evans, yeah. a.k.a. Mouse, yeah. a.k.a. William, yeah. former police commissioner of Boston and uh, one of the central figures in the whole uh, Boston bombing aftermath. Thank you so much okay. for coming on my podcast today. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I hope you had a good time in Boston and, uh, you know, you come back soon. Thank you very much for making it all the way through this episode of Runners Only with Dom Harvey. That was... Billy Evans. What an incredible guy, eh? Really hope you enjoyed that. If you've ever got any feedback about the podcast or any guest suggestions or anything like that, you can get a hold of me, DM me on Instagram, DomHarveyNZ, or you can email me, DomHarveyNZ at gmail.com. I do get a lot of messages, so if I don't get back to you, um, I do apologise, um, but do know that I read and take on board uh, every every comment, every bit of feedback, and every guest suggestion, because... Um, yeah, this is your podcast, and I really appreciate having you guys along for the journey. Um, if you haven't done so already, if your podcast platform allows, I know Apple does, um, please write a review for the podcast. And um, if you're on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast, um, give this show a rating if you haven't done so already. All that stuff helps the algorithm. I don't know how exactly, um, but it definitely does help. Thank you very much again to the sponsors of this episode, Radix Nutrition, R-A-D-I-X. They are doing incredible things with their small team from their factory in the Waikato, and it's an honour to have them on board sponsoring this podcast, radixnutrition.co.nz. That's R-A-D-I-X. All right, once again, thank you very much for joining me. I do appreciate it, and I hope to see you next week on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.